if you'll turn in your Bible to Acts chapter uh, 28. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. In our study through the book of Acts, we actually, this is our second to last message in the book of Acts. So, yeah, we're almost done. And uh, so it's been quite a journey, and I I pray that uh, you've been blessed by it. Most of the messages um, have been recorded. Most of them are on uh, uh, sermon.net slash C-O-R-P, so if you wanted to listen to them, yeah, we miss a few technology issues, but most of them are on there if you are interested. So as we look at today's passage, this, this closing chapter in the book of Acts, what we're going to see is Paul arriving in Rome. And this was a long-held desire by Paul to go to Rome. Very early on in his missionary activities, it was his, his wish, his Bucket list item. I want to go to Rome. And then he actually gets a direct word from Christ himself. You're going to Rome. But I suppose that his arrival in Rome looks a little bit different than what he had imagined because he comes as a prisoner. He comes in chains. He arrives having survived numerous assassination attempts unjust court decisions, imprisonment, shipwreck, and as we'll see today, a snake bite. Perhaps somewhat instructive for us, his arrival, though, is not in bitterness. It is not even in disappointment, nor in complaint. Actually, he arrives in great joy. He he, he arrives in great joy as he meets his brothers and sisters in Christ that he has longed for many years to meet. Paul realizes that the chains of Rome are not a hindrance, for he had become a prisoner of Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul is undaunted by death, for he had lost his life when Christ had bid him to follow. So Paul comes, these chains are nothing. I was a prisoner long before they put these chains on me. I died to myself long before any executioner or judge could pronounce a sentence of death. I'm a servant of Christ, and I've died to my old life. So that's kind of where, kind of a brief overview, some, some things that I hope to, uh, to talk a bit about today. Is, uh, I hope we see that Paul's arrival in Rome, it comes through a rather circuitous route. Um, he didn't just, like, have a direct flight uh, to Rome. He bounced around quite a lot. And through that bouncing around and that circuitous route, what we see is we see the providence of God, that God is in control of Paul's life. God is in control of our lives. God is in control of storms, and God is in control of all history. So we do see that. But one of the things I want to highlight today is we, we talked about the providence of God last week. Today we are going to look at the mercy of God. You see, the gospel comes to Malta. Malta, some little dot in the ocean. Basically, podunk Malta. And God cares for Malta. And the word and the gospel is going to come to Malta. It's not going to come just simply in word, but it's going to come in humility and power. We're going to see God show great concern for these, quote, barbarians. 
And really one of the main emphases that I, that I hope gets drawn out today is that through Paul's work, the gospel is adorned. The gospel is made beautiful. I was reminded of Titus chapter 2, verse 10, how the gospel is made beautiful. I think we have that, that passage. There we go. The gospel is adorned. This is what uh, Titus 2.10 says, or at least the last part of the verse says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this is actually written to individuals. These are, this is written to servants, um, to slaves, and say, you, I want you to be honest. I want you to act ethically. Your ethical behavior adorns the gospel. It makes the gospel beautiful. We talk a lot here about doctrine. And teaching, and I think that's so important. We spend a lot of time making sure that we understand who God is, who man is, who Christ is, the the effects of his works, the importance of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We talk a lot about that. We also need to make sure that we understand that salvation, when, when we come to a place... And the Spirit reveals to us that we have sinned against the Holy God and we repent and call upon His name and receive the salvation that He has offered through the substitutionary death of Christ. And we have that assurance by the Spirit that we also understand that it changes our whole life. It changed the lives of the people that, Titus was, uh, that um, Paul was writing to about in Titus that your lives now adorn the gospel. You make it beautiful. Your beautiful uh, life makes the gospel, makes God look great. So that's one of the things I, I want us to do. Bond servants are um, we're being called to be ethical, and by being ethical, they make the gospel beautiful. So I hope today we will learn a little bit and be reminded and encouraged as we go from here, that we will make the gospel beautiful. So if you will, um, follow along with me. I'm going to read uh, Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 16. And if you will, follow along with me as we consider um, God's inerrant word. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that after the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery, dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. 
And when we were about to set sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered on the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there three days. And there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putoli. And there we found brothers. And we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And may the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. So as we begin chapter 28, we see this very first statement. And when we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. It would be really easy to overlook this word safely. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I think it's key to the text. When we are brought safely through, through, we learned that the island was called Malta. God has made his name great by delivering safely those whose hope for survival had been completely abandoned. God did as God said he was going to do. You'll recall last week as we were studying that they had set sail from um, Fairhavens and they were hoping to go just a half a day's journey, maybe 60 miles a day at the most, over to a, a, to a little port city called Phoenix, thinking they could spend the winter there. And they had a south wind and that was a good omen for them and they thought that was going to uh, um, allow them to safely arrive in the port they'd hoped to winter at. But partway through, a, a northeaster came down and blew them into the open ocean and for two weeks, no stars, no moon, nothing. you got to remember, stars and moon is how they're being guided. They have nothing. The ship is being uh, tossed. Um, the sailors, everybody had pretty much lost hope. The, the general consensus is that we are going to die. And God spoke to Paul and said, tell these people you're not going to die. And when we came safely through, and so here we see that God has done what God has said he was going to do. He brought them safely to the place that God said he was going to bring them. Well, God has made his name great. I also want you to note, I know um, if you're part of this this church, you know I have to kind of get Greek geek on you every once in a while. And I just want you to note the passive nature of the verb. It's a passive verb. In other words, the sailors, um, they were brought safely. It was the work of another agent that brought them safely. It was entirely the work of God that brought them safely into this harbor. And they come and they realize that the... Island is, is called Malta, and most many of your Bibles will say native. Some, of, some, some other translations might call them barbarians. And um, they weren't barbarians in the sense that you and I think of barbarians, you know, like uncouth, uncivilized type of individuals. It was just, it, to the Greeks, when, when, when the Greeks were expanding their territories, anybody who didn't speak Greek was a barbarian. And they just because they, they, they heard speech and it sounded like barbar, 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 barbar to them. And so um, they named them barbarians. 
Um, it's kind of an onomatopoeia, if you will. That's what it sounded like. And I've always, I can check that off my bucket list. I've always wanted to use the word onomatopoeia in a sermon. It's been 20 years, and so now I've done it. And um, my sermon's done. You know. But that's basically what it is. They just heard bar, 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 and they just thought an indistinguishable speech. These are the natives of Malta. And I find it really interesting. So they kindle a fire. That makes sense to me. Um, they're cold. It's raining. They've been at sea. They're, it's raining, wind, it's cold. And, but here's what strikes me is so interesting. is that when Paul had gathered bundles of sticks, what? Paul has gathered bundles of sticks for the fire. Paul is always a servant. Paul is now engaging in these menial tasks to serve others. This was the work that was consigned to the lowest level in society. And Paul, though he is a prisoner, he is certainly at this point highly regarded. He is the guy who got them through this mess it would be very easy for Paul to say, listen, I got you through this thing. We got you here. Now somebody build a fire. And they would have. And Paul is gathering sticks for the fire. I don't think that's strange at all. You see, Paul is a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul is a follower of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, we read this. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I am an imitator of Christ. And Jesus said that he was a servant of all. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus to his disciples says this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus was a servant and he calls his disciples to be servants as well. Mark chapter 10, verse 42, where he says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Paul says, I am a follower of Christ. That means I am a servant to these men. And I will gather sticks and perform the most menial of tasks in order to adorn the gospel. Men are often proud of their authority and rank. Humility was of no virtue in the Roman world. And Paul submits himself to these men and humbles himself as a servant. Paul is a follower of Christ. As I said earlier, Paul's status, he had certainly earned credibility on the ship. He had been entrusted with the lives of all 276 individuals on board. He led the way that saved their lives. Paul now does not direct others to gather sticks, but he serves reflecting Christ. John 13 Verse 15, after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he says this, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. I gave you an example of being a lowly servant. And now you are to follow me. And Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. 
I'm a follower of Christ. Christ served, I serve. Christ lowers himself, I lower myself. What does it take to make the gospel and to make God glorious and beautiful? I will humble myself and do the most menial thing for the most pagan people in order to make God's name glorious. So the gospel is adorned. The message of Christ saving people from their sins is beautified by his servant serving. We should share the gospel. That God is holy and that we have sinned against that holy God. And that the wages of sin is death. But Christ died in our place. He suffered death on our behalf so that we might have, and actually gave us his righteousness. Our sins are covered. We have been given his righteousness. We are now forgiven. We should make that message known far and wide. And we should adorn it and make it beautiful by being the servants of another. So Paul serves. And then we come to perhaps one of the more prominent features in this text, and that is Paul gets bit by a snake. I don't know what's going through Paul's mind when he gets bit by a snake, so I won't comment much, but I will just comment a little. I don't know. It says that he shook it off into the fire, and I don't know if Paul gets bit and he goes, ouch. Or if he gets bit and goes, Really? A snake? Because <laughs> I remember when I was in prison in Caesarea and Jesus appeared to me and said, we're going to Rome. And I've got a professional assassins trying to kill me. But we're going to Rome because Jesus says so. I'm in prison. That doesn't matter. I'm going to Rome. I get on a ship. Yeah, we got blown off course, shipwrecked, and for 14 days we're blown. But I'm going to Rome, and now a snake. Really? Like, what? I'm going to Rome. The snake? That's the best you got? But really, I think, uh, I just made that up. I don't know what was going through Paul's mind. What I do know is this snake becomes the means that God uses to exalt Paul in the eyes of the islanders. It is the means by which Paul has opportunity to share the gospel of grace to the island of Malta. Otherwise, he's just a Roman prisoner. Now, he is, first of all, they think he is um, condemned because a snake bit him. That must mean, you know, when bad things happen... If something bad happens to you, it must mean because you're guilty. And then, um, when he doesn't die, they think he's a god. I do want to make note a little bit about this superstitious belief of these uh, uh, natives of Malta. And, and I really wouldn't make mention of it, except for the fact that I think that their superstitious understanding is also prominent and perhaps pervasive in uh, the Christian world today, that perhaps we sadly think that bad things happen to bad people. That when something bad happens, it means that 
some, you must have done something bad. So my car broke down. Oh, my goodness. It's because I didn't read the Bible. I didn't do my devotions this morning. Or I got a ticket because I didn't say grace before my meal. Probably got a ticket because you're speeding. But we, we, we tend to associate, well, something bad happened. It must be because I did something bad. That's pure superstition. Well, it's not pure superstition, but mostly superstition. The, native believed, the natives had believed that Paul had escaped the, uh, the goddess D.K., which means justice. Her name is Justice. She's the goddess of justice. And they think that, oh, he, he escaped her clutches by surviving the shipwreck, but she caught up with him on the beaches of Malta with a snake, and now he's a dead man. That's their thinking. He must be a murderer. D.K. was the daughter of Jupiter who took vengeance on those who were guilty of crimes. And when Paul does not die, now their their opinion changes from him being a murderer to him being divine. The Bible speaks to us of a number of reasons as to why perhaps bad things might happen or difficult things or trials may come our way. One reason why trials may come our way or we may suffer is just what we will call common suffering. We live in a fallen world and sometimes cars break down. We get sick. We get terminal diseases. Sometimes it's just common suffering. We live in a fallen world. And it's true. A second reason, it is true that sometimes our suffering is Due to, um, to God's judgment. I mean, you see that in the Bible. Sometimes God does judge wickedness directly and justly. Sometimes it's corrective. Hebrews chapter 13. We will suffer because um, God is ch- chastening us. He's growing us. And no discipline at the, at the moment seems pleasant. But God is using it to grow you and to help you. And then another, a fourth reason, it's certainly not, um, there's certainly more than four reasons for suffering in, in Scripture, but this last one I think is pertinent, and that is sometimes God allows for us to suffer for his glory. I present to you Job and the blind man in John chapter 9. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Neither but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This snake incident is the means by which God is going to authenticate Paul in the eyes of the residents of Malta. He is the, the snake is the means by which God is going to get an, uh, an audience on the island of Malta. So we see God's name being made. We will see God's name being made great on the island of Malta. Then we see, I love verse 8. It happened. I love those words in the Bible. It happened. I mean, it's almost kind of God being anonymous, don't you think? It just happened. 
It just so happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever. God has now opened the door for Paul to adorn the gospel, this time not with humility, but with power. Paul um, is certainly vocal in speaking the truths about Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But now the door opens for Paul to make the gospel beautiful and he's going to do so through supernatural power. He's going to heal the father of Publius. This will be the catalyst for others to come to Paul um, and to be healed. I'm certainly aware that Luke does not mention any explicit gospel presentation in Acts chapter 28, or at least in our text today. But I think we've traveled with Paul now for quite some time since Acts chapter 9. We've traveled with Paul quite a bit, and we are familiar enough with Paul to be confident that the message of Christ accompanied everything he did. This is what Paul talked about. Paul talked about being saved from our sins and Christ rising from the dead. And so we see now signs and wonders and miracles being done through the power of the Holy Spirit through Paul. And we should make a note as to um, the purpose of miracles in the Bible. There are probably uh, a few reasons why miracles occur in the Bible, but I think the most prominent and the most noteworthy and uh, the reason why they, they occur mostly is to authenticate a message or to authenticate the messenger. The purpose of signs was to authenticate a message and we see signs and wonders taking place very frequently whenever the gospel enters into new borders. When it enters into a new region, the gospel comes and signs and wonders follow. Why? To show that the message is authentic. To show that what is being said has divine backing. It was common when the message of God reached new areas. We see signs being done in... Signs and miracles are done throughout the Bible, but we see them coalesced in a few different eras. We see lots of miracles in in the time of Moses. Why? Because, number one, he's got a message to Pharaoh that God is the ruler of all things. And then he's authenticating the message to the people that God is your God. He's the one who delivered you. We see then we kind of see it kind of fade away a little bit, a little bit in Joshua. But then in the time of the kings, we see Elijah and Elisha. Why? Because they're bringing the message of God back, the covenant message of God back to the people who have abandoned him. And they would say, why? What's the difference between God and Baal? I'll show you the difference between God and Baal. We'll go up onto Baal's mountain, Mount Carmel, and we'll put a sacrifice up there. I'll dump water and all sorts of stuff all over mine. And when God shows up, fire will come down from heaven. So we see this explosion of miracles, and then we don't see a whole lot. Until the Son of God, Christ our Lord, comes on the scene, and then 
miracles, and we see that through the apostles as they go. And then, as, as you know, especially as the, the New Testament, we see them fade a little bit as time goes on. As the message goes to new areas, the message has now come to Malta. And in Malta, Paul declares gospels of grace and signs and wonders are, are obvious. Just in case you're concerned, we believe entirely that God does miracles. We wouldn't pray if we didn't think God does miracles. Do we pray for the salvation of people? Absolutely, because that's a miracle. Do we pray that people would be healed? Absolutely. Do we pray that God would do things that are utterly impossible and that we are utterly incapable of and that defy all the laws of logic and nature? Yes. Because God is a gracious, miracle, powerful God who does things that we cannot imagine. So Paul is now um, reaching these people. The message is validated. The gospel is adorned with power. So we see in the beginning the gospel is adorned with service and now the gospel is adorned with power. And finally Paul says, and we came to Rome. I find it interesting how they got to Rome. They got there on an Alexandrian ship. And, the, and Luke makes this very interesting note did you note, he says, and the twin gods as a figurehead. It's a very interesting thing. It's unique. To, Paul's been on a lot of ships. But we have never noted that Paul was on a ship with the twin gods as a figurehead. The twin gods were um, Castor and Pollux. Um, they were considered beneficial to sailors. And when their constellation, Gemini, the twins, was in the sky, it was believed to be good luck. I think Luke has a point, is making a point when he mentions these twin gods because they are weak, feeble, nothing gods. Because you'll recall when they were in the storm, there were no stars. The stars had been blotted out. These, these superstitious, made-up deities could not save them in their time of trouble. The darkness hid them. And they could not break through the darkness. But God Almighty, who is not limited by darkness or by anything else, brings these people to safety. They failed at saving the Savior, uh, saving the sailors. But the God whom Paul serves and worships delivers. The other thing, perhaps a bit ironic, is these false gods are now the are being used to transport Paul and the gospel to Rome. God's like, you are nothing to me. These gods are nothing. They, they will, even though they're false, the people believe they were real. And they serve me. I am God Almighty. And they will be the means by which my message of saving faith will be brought to the city of Rome. And I love the meeting when they get there. And so we came to Rome and we, we see that um, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and from three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. What a joyful meeting. 
Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. Look at in, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Paul says this. For I longed, he's writing to the Romans, for I longed to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm eager to come to Rome. And then in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I pray that I can come to you with joy. And when the brothers came from the... Uh, um, from, from Appius and three taverns. That was a trip of 44 miles. They walked 44 miles to greet their brother Paul. They had never met this man, but they had received his letter three years earlier in about 57 A.D., they had received his epistle three years prior, and now they hear he's just 44 miles away. Let's go out and see him and meet him and refresh him. And there will be mutual joy as brothers and sisters come who have never met but love one another because of Christ. And so we came to Rome. What a joyful meeting. So just a few comments as I close our message today. The first is that, Paul, that God has considered Malta, little Malta, an island, kind of not all that important, not a big player in the Roman Empire, but God goes to Malta. Podunk Malta. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. God comes to the rim country, to pine and strawberry. I know folks in the cities might think that Oh, you're just a bunch of hicks up there. Well, we might be hicks. But God has come to pine and to strawberry to make his name great. And I pray that today, the next thing is then, is that right doctrine is adorned by right action. I pray that you understand the truths that God has put forth and that you adorn that truth with, with right action. That you adorn the gospel with service. And if God willing, he w and works power powerfully through you in supernatural ways, maybe he may do so. But today, we can adorn the gospel by making his name beautiful and making the gospel that we preach glorious. So God has considered Malta. God has called us to adorn the gospel and to make it beautiful. And finally we can see that God has been faithful to his promises to Paul, but we're not surprised by that. God has been faithful in all of his promises. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, God promised a Savior. 
And then in the fullness of time, God brought forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. God fulfilled his promise. God fulfilled his promises to Paul. God has promised you salvation, and he will fulfill that promise in the day that you breathe your last breath. That promise will be realized, or perhaps one day, while you're here on this earth, the trumpet will sound, and you'll hear his voice, And he will again fulfill his promise to you, to his people. You've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. If if today you are realizing that, you know what, I have sinned, I've rebelled against a holy God, I want you to know that's the Spirit of God working upon your heart. And I would encourage you, I would exhort you, I would beg you now to... Heed that and repent, that is to turn away from your sins and turn to Christ who died for your sins according to the scriptures and you too will be saved. We have a lot of people in this church who would love to talk to you if you're in that, in that category. My wife right here running the, uh, the computers, myself, we would love to talk to you about what it means to be a, a follower of Christ and and, and what that new life is going to look like. We have plenty of other people. Nelson, who is doing, who is presiding, he'd love to talk to you. We've got Samuel and Megan in the back. They would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. But really, probably most people in this church would just love to sit down and, and talk with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I would implore you at this time... Um, to bow before that conviction. That conviction is the Spirit of God. Um, And I would ask you to uh, come and talk to one of us about what it means to follow Christ. If you would, let's stand as we uh, pray. Our gracious Father, you have blessed us. You are the blessed forever. There is none beside you, Lord God. You are faithful. You are faithful, Lord God, when, when the storms blow. You are faithful when the snake bites. You are faithful, Lord God, when we encounter uh, situations beyond our ability. You are faithful that you bring us brothers and sisters who cause us, who are a source of joy and blessing and rejoicing. We thank you. We give you praise and we give you adoration. Lord, I pray this day that we would be willing to serve our brothers and sisters. And we would be willing to serve those who are not brothers and sisters yet. You've called us to be servants. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice when we are treated as a servant. We are following you. So help us, Father God, to do the things that you've blessed us with, called us to do. Let us trust your faithfulness. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's sing.